We're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4. Let's pray together. Father, just as Billy was leading us in worship and encouraging our hearts to cry out for and expect your grace in our lives, Lord, as, as hard as we try, we, we fall short. And we do ask that you would pour out your grace in our weakness. We ask as we study your word that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit that we could press into you, Jesus, press into the suffering that you have in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Time is limited from two perspectives. One, we know that we're not going to live forever. We don't know when our life is going to end. You know, we hope to, to live to be in our 70s, 80s, but we never know when that finish line is going to be when we're going to come into God's presence. So without a doubt, Our time is limited, but also time for everyone is limited. We're going to see the end of all things is near. Christ is going to return. There's going to be his thousand-year reign. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so what do we do in light of the fact that time is limited? If, If you're a sports fan, you know that it always revolves around time, doesn't it? In basketball, you've got your your four quarters, and you're always looking at the clock as the game's going down and, and to see if you can catch up or if your victory's going to hold out. You know, football, you've got halftime. There's that point where you stop and you consider and you're always evalu- evaluating time. For the Broncos, it really doesn't matter what time it is this year. Uh, it's just been rough all the way around, hasn't it? But it, it's good for us to stop and, and consider that time is, is really limited. And we're exhorted in this passage to adopt the mind of Christ, to embrace suffering the way that, that Christ does. We're, we're also taught to pray seriously and these things to not be surprised by trial that comes into to our lives, but it's all in the context of time. So verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The context is suffering for righteousness. That's the end of of chapter 3. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, and we're encouraged to meditate upon that for a moment. Christ suffered for me. Christ suffered for you. He suffered leaving the glory of heaven, being misunderstood in this life. God in in human flesh, nailed to the cross, punished for my sin, separated from the Father. He was willing to suffer in the flesh. He didn't choose an easy life. He didn't choose the easy road, but he chose suffering so that I could be saved. And we're encouraged by Peter here, you also arm yourselves with the same mind. Take on the same mind of Christ. So if you're taking notes tonight, write this down. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. This is the only place in the New Testament where we're told to arm ourselves. And and that phrase is only used one time. You know, you think of arming yourself for for self-defense. What are you doing if you choose to go down that road? Is you're hopefully trying to prepare yourself for an attack upon your person or upon your your family members. You're you're prepared. You've armed yourself. And here we have... 
protection if we choose to take on the mind of Christ, specifically when it comes to suffering, that my mind is prepared to suffer. Remember the context of who Peter's writing to. He's writing to the the Jewish church that has been dispersed. He says to the dispersion. They're living under the time of Nero, and there's tremendous amount of persecution even to the point where they have to to flee for their lives. And Peter doesn't say it's going to get easier. Peter doesn't say, well, Nero's going to change his mind. Peter doesn't guarantee that their family's going to be safe. He says the exact opposite. He says, I want you to take on the mind of Christ, Christ's likeness, Christ's attitude, and surrender yourself to suffering. And I don't know about you, but that's difficult, you know, especially for me in my American mindset, in my my Western mindset. I tend to anticipate that things are always going to get better and be easier. Disney has trained us, haven't they? There's always the, the happy ending, and we go through our days with this expectation. I oftentimes think, well, if I can just get through this tough season, no doubt, then it's going to lead to an easier season. And oftentimes, if you have kids in your home, you imagine being an empty nester. And then when you're an empty nester, you imagine having kids in your home, right? And we come to find out that you can't engineer yourself out of difficulty. Not, not in the Christian life, not if we're, we're pressing into Christ. In fact, Jesus told us that in this life you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What if we surrendered to suffering? What if we surrendered to the more difficult road and we come to understand that following Christ isn't going to be easy? Following Christ doesn't necessarily mean everything turns out my way or everyone's going to like me. You you fill in the blank. And Jesus, as he lived his life, he had the cross in front of him and he was surrendered to the cross. He knew that he was going to die upon the cross. And in Luke 9, 51, it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew his time and hour to be crucified. And he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be crucified for our sins. And I don't tend to be pessimistic or to be overwhelmed in discouragement, but it is calling us to a mindset where we've armed ourselves to say, I understand that it's going to be difficult. I've counted the cost, and I've found it to be worthwhile, and I'm choosing to adopt this mindset of Christ. Why could Christ surrender so much to suffering? We're told because of the joy set before him. He wasn't necessarily focused on the suffering. He was focused on what would come after the suffering, the glory of being with the Father, the glory that the sacrifice was going to result in the purchasing of his bride. And so that's what he put his attention on. And for us, as we adopt this mindset of suffering, we get to have the end in mind. We get to meditate on the glory of the Father. We get to know that we're going to be with Christ for for all of eternity. I think we'll actually be more healthy in the end if we choose to accept suffering and accept the mindset of Christ. I'm sorry if you got sold the wrong bill of goods that said, if you receive Christ and accept him as your Lord, choosing to follow him, everything's going to be easy. 
that because you're a believer in Christ, you're going to get cheesecake every night at 9 o'clock. God's going to rotate the flavor for you. You're never going to have problems with your bills. You're never going to have problems relationally. You're never going to be persecuted for, for Christ's sake. No, it's worth it. Our sins are forgiven. We're the child of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it does involve suffering. And we had arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ, accepting the suffering. In verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So there it is. No longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. How much time do you have left? We don't know. But how are we going to use that time? Are we going to use it for the lusts of men? Are we going to use it for the will of God? And that's the choice that's presented for us. And that's seen in verse 3. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There's two choices for a path of surrender. One is to the will of the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, those that don't know Christ their Savior, and the other is the will of God. And we're going to daily, moment to moment, choose, am I in the will of God, or am I in the will of the Gentiles? Am I in the will of a lost and, and dying world? Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know that the will of Gentiles is alive and well? Do you know the advertisement for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? It's everywhere, right? People rejecting Christ, and they're saying, hey, come swim in this stream. Come enjoy this, this sinful life with me. For some reason, misery loves company, right? So we know that that voice is there, but we also know that the voice of the will of God is there. Peter's writing to believers. He's writing to us. He's saying, you've got to choose. You can, you can choose the will of God or you can choose the will of the Gentiles and saying, haven't you spent enough time in this flood of sin? Lewdness is unbridled lust. There's no conviction. Before you knew Christ your Savior, lust is just unbridled. Lust is a longing for what is forbidden. You know? God says this is forbidden and so I long for it in my, my sinful flesh. Drunkenness, just given over to alcohol, given over to drugs, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In Proverbs 26, 11, it tells us this. A dog, wait for it, returns to his own vomit. So a fool returns to his folly. If you haven't had the opportunity to see a dog return to his vomit, consider yourself blessed. But it's a timeless truth. Dogs do return to their vomit. Not to gross you out, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's nothing worse than dog vomit, you know? We have a Newfoundland. Her name is Lady Lou. Newfoundlands are a large breed. She's about 160 pounds. And every, every once in a while, I hear her start to, to lose it. And I'm just, oh, man. You know? It's disgusting. It smells terrible, right? And then for some reason, a dog finds that attractive. I was like, I gotta, I gotta lick that up. I gotta enjoy that for the second time. <laughs> and so a fool with his folly, right? It's bad enough that these things tripped us up before we were believers. 
right? But it's another thing, now that we know Christ is our Savior, to go back, to go back. As I was praying and meditating for the service, I, I really think for some of us, we're being tempted to go back tonight. In this season of our lives, for some reason, there's maybe something inside of you that's starting to doubt. I don't know if following Christ is worth it. I don't know if going against the stream is worthwhile. Here I've been following Christ for 20 years, 20 months, and I had this expectation, and it's not being met and fulfilled, and it seems like I'm missing out. You get on Facebook, and you've got those friends from that time in your life when you didn't know Christ as their Savior, or friends from, from work that don't know Christ as their Savior, believers who have fallen away, and they're saying, hey, come on. Let's go have some fun. Let's go, let's go to this party. And you're saying, yeah, I, I'm kind of tired. Kind of tired of being faithful to the Lord. Tired of being faithful to my spouse. Tired of being faithful in my, in my singleness. And this is for you. This is for us. This is God saying, look, don't go back. You've spent enough time there. You already know that it's vomit. You already know how the story ends. The wages of sin is death. It's never worthwhile. It's always worthwhile to, to follow Christ, to be in relationship with him and, and walk with him. The Psalms tells us that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tent of the wicked. And it, it's better to hold the door in God's house. It, no matter where you're at, if you're in fellowship with believers, that's way better than being in the tent of wickedness. There was nothing there for us. Remember it re- accurately. In verse four, it says, in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or sinful living, speaking evil of you. So your friends are like, what? You don't do this anymore? You're not going to go out with me? We're not going to go paint up the town and do all of our sinful living? You're not going to engage in this conversation anymore? And they think it's strange. They can't understand why you're at a Wednesday night Bible study. What in the world? Why would you be doing that? What, your kids are learning Bible verses? Your kids are going to, to youth group? And they begin to persecute you because you'll no longer be with them in that flood of destruction. Verse 5 says, They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. God says, Don't worry about it. Don't try to fix it. Don't be defensive. They're accountable to Jesus. Jesus is going to judge them. They're going to have to stand before the Lord. And there's a hope in verse 6 that these unbelieving friends will respond to the gospel. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So the gospel's preached to those who are dead that don't know Christ as their savior for the hope that they might be saved, for the hope that they may come alive through God's spirit. But even if they don't, God wants the gospel to be shared with them so that they will be held accountable. You, you heard the gospel here. You heard that Jesus loved you here. You heard that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. And you're accountable to the gospel truth that you have rejected. I've been reminded just this week that as the church of God, God has entrusted to us the solution. You're like, what? God has entrusted to us the solution? Yeah, because he's entrusted to us the gospel. And Jesus is the solution. 
we look at the things that are happening in, in our community and what's the answer to it? Our community needs Jesus, amen? There, there's a need for all different kinds of effort in our city. And they can have a certain level of impact and, and influence, but ultimately only Jesus can save someone from their sins and change their heart. Change them going from darkness to light. And guess what? The church of God, we know the gospel. We have the opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What gets somebody out of this flood of destruction? It's only Jesus. It's only the gospel. We go on into verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. From God's perspective, the end is near. Even back in Peter's day. So how much more so is the end at hand now? As God looks at all of history and all of humanity, he says to us in his word, the end is near. We've got to trust him on that. There is going to be the point where Christ returns, where Christ rules and reigns, where Christ creates a new heaven and a new earth. So what does that mean for us knowing that the end's at hand? It gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us insurance so we can press on but it also helps us to figure out our priorities. So this is the second thing to to write down, is live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. Some people put it this way, live with the rocking chair in view. What would be important to you as you think about your life at the end in your elderly years rocking in the rocking chair? But even more so, not just our own personal end, but the end of all things. You know, at the end of all things, what's really going to matter? You know, what's, what's really going to be remembered? What should we be, be living for? And Peter goes into three or four things here of how we should be living, but the whole motivation is the end is near. The end is near. We have to receive this by faith because sometimes it doesn't feel like the end is near. Our very own lives seem like forever. Like, I know I'm going to get to the end of my life, but it sure seems like a long way out in the horizon. I know Christ is going to return at some point, but generations have thought that for for years, and what if there's 10 more generations? We have to trust his word. As God looks at all of eternity, he says, my end is near. And I think if we look honestly, we see more and more signs leading up to the end. So here's the response. Live with the end in mind, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Pray seriously. Pray seriously. If the end is near, God says that he wants us to be serious and watchful in our prayers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, pray lest you enter into temptation. Fellowship with God is going to keep us from entering into temptation, to giving into sinful temptation. Have you noticed that in your life? When you're fellowshipping with the Lord, isn't it a lot easier to say no to temptation? But when we're not fellowshipping with the Lord, man, temptation becomes so much more attractive. Man, what's going on in my heart that this looks good all of a sudden? It's because I'm not watching my prayer life. I'm not drawing close to the Lord. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus told us to watch because we don't know what hour He's coming. Seems to be a, a theme right now is prayer. You know, sometimes as we look at 
the Sunday study, the Saturday study, the weekend study with the Wednesday night study and go, God, or do you have a theme for us right now as Rocky Mountain Calvary? And it seems to be this, this topic of prayer. You know, Daniel, he really took prayer seriously, didn't he? And in Daniel chapter 9, specifically when it came to the events of the end, what did it move him to do? It moved him to pray seriously, to really press in to the Lord's presence. And so what's really changed maybe in our prayer life even from Sunday, you know, as we were encouraged in God's word, have we, have we moved deeper in prayer? What would it look like in my life, in your life, in our life if, if we took prayer seriously and we were watchful in our prayers? Verse 8, but above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We're to pray seriously, but we're to love fervently, love fervently. I, I picture fervent love as if you're making oatmeal, and you put it on about medium, medium high, get distracted with the things that are going on in the morning, and the oatmeal's been boiling for a little bit. Right? And before you know it, one of the kids or your spouse says, Dad, the oatmeal's overflowing. Right? And it is overflowing fervently at this point. Now, in that context, it's not a good thing. But in the context of love, this is exactly what God desires. He wants your love to be fervent, He wants your love to boil over for others. Isn't that a great description? where we're so full of the grace of God, the love of God, the living water, where it just begins to flow over into our lives. We're earnest about others. We're passionate about others. We care about others. We want to display the love of Jesus Christ to the believer and the unbeliever. And it's a priority in the text. It says, above all things, above all things, be fervent in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You can have faith to move mountains, but if you don't have love, we don't have anything, right? You can have the tongue of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Sometime in worship, when we're going through 1 Corinthians 13, we should just have the drummer slaughter it through the whole worship set. Or it just hurts your ears, right? And everybody's like, what's wrong with that guy? Somebody needs to tell him that it doesn't sound good. Right? It's a clanging symbol. It's off. And the Lord's saying, that's us without love. Love fervently. And what does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. Maybe not what we would expect for love to do. Maybe you don't like God's definition of love here. Saying, I'm not going to cover other people's sins. That's not what God's asking, asking me to do. You think about the sacrifice of Jesus and Jesus covered our sin fully and completely by dying for it. And sometimes God wants us in our love for others to be willing to pay the price for their sin. To love to the point where we have to, to sacrifice. This doesn't mean that we excuse sin in one another's lives or just say, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. There's time to confront in love and humility and really caring for somebody but the whole attitude is one of gentleness and concern and to restore them and never to expose them. If I'm ever confronting someone with the heart to expose them or I'm having a tendency to talk to other believers 
about another believer to reveal their sin, then I know my heart is, is unloving. We see this with Noah's sons. Noah, after the flood, gets off of the ark. Things start to grow. He grows some grapes. He makes some wine. And he gets drunk. And he's so drunk, he's naked. And here comes one of his sons. And he thinks this is the funniest thing that's ever happened to dad. Now, come, come on, be honest. That's a pretty honest response from a son, right? Dad's drunk off his can and he's naked. I got to go get my other brothers and tell them, right? So he gets the other brothers. He's like, yeah, dad right there. He's drunk, naked. And the other two brothers have the opposite response. They don't want to shame dad. And they won't look upon his nakedness and they hold a blanket between the two of them, walk up, and they cover dad's nakedness. And that's what love does. As being brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to see one another's sin. And when that happens, we confront in love, we pray for each other, but we don't expose. We don't go around sharing other people's failures. Love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So we've seen pray seriously, love fervently, but share joyfully. Hospitality is all about sharing. Sharing your home, sharing your food, sharing financial resources, sharing a smile, sharing time. Be hospitable to one another and do it without grumbling. Sometimes when we're hospitable to the body of Christ, we feel a little bit grumpy about it, don't we? Oh, you know what? They just ate more chips than I was hoping they would. <laughs> I know I like chips, but I didn't realize they like chips so much. And wow, right? We can start to, to get grumpy about it. Or we can start to think, well, I'm the only one that shows hospitality. I'm the, I'm the only one that goes through these halls and looks at other people and smiles and says, how are you doing? We've got our focus on the wrong thing if that's how we're showing our hospitality. Be a cheerful giver. Just do it joyfully. Do it without grumbling. Share joyfully. In verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Serve effectively. God wants you to use the gift that you've received. Part of the expression of God's grace in our lives is he's given us gifts. By his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He hardwired us that way. When we were saved, he gave us spiritual gifts. And we're a steward of the gift. What does that mean? It means it doesn't belong to us, but we're held responsible to how we use it. So this isn't for somebody else. God has given you gifts. The way he's made you and when he saved you, and he wants to use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. You might be saying, who, me? I'm not gifted. I don't have any gifts from the Lord. Yeah, you do. Do you tend to be merciful towards others? If someone makes a mistake, do you have genuine compassion towards them? And it seems that mercy just flows naturally out of you. That's that's a gift of mercy. Hang out with an exhorter for a while and you'll realize that you have the gift of mercy. You're like, well, what in the world's the gift of exhortation. The exhorter is going to always be challenging someone to take the next step that they're unwilling to take. They may not necessarily be good at showing mercy, but they're good at challenging people. Look, you're ready for the next step. Could you imagine if our church was just full of 
all of those that had the gift of mercy, all we would do is sit around and cry with each other, right? (laughs) But what if our church was filled with everybody was an exhorter? All we would do is bark and challenge each other, right? It'd be a terrible place to be. We need some mercy. We need some exhorters. We need some people with the gift of helps where you just love to help people. You're like, I'm not so good at the mercy thing. Definitely not an exhorter. But I like to get in and help people. If there's something broken at their house, I want to go in and get my hands dirty. I want to help, help fix it. That's my dad, you know. He's really good at fixing things and he shows the love of Christ by practically getting in there with his hands. That's a gift from the Lord. Use it, use it unto the Lord, you know. Some of you have the gift of administration. You were hardwired to organize things and create systems. How do you know who you are? Look at your closet, right? Look at your garage. Take take a moment to think of, of the way that you process life, and you're like, yeah, I can see a solution, you know? As I'm hanging around Rocky Mountain Calvary, they could use some more administration in these areas. These systems would really benefit the body of Christ. Man, you need to use that unto the Lord. So what are some things that you enjoy? What are some things that that come naturally to you? That's probably where God has gifted you and probably where your spiritual gift lies and use it to, to build up the body. And this is when the Christian life gets exciting and we take personal ownership of the church. And thank you for those of you that are serving and I want to encourage you, whether you officially fulfill a task or a role inside of Rocky Mountain Calvary, if this is your, your home church, begin to pray about how God can stir up your gifts to be used to build up the body of Christ and edify one another because God has truly given you gifts from the Lord. Here's the example of how our gifts can be used. In verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If someone's speaking, may it be like the oracles of God. May they be speaking with authority the word of God. And if someone serves, let them do it with the ability which God provides. If we're speaking the word of God, with the ability that God provides, then God is glorified. But this also means there's a way to serve where we're doing it with our own words, our own ideas, and our own strength where Christ is not glorified. And I long to find that place of being able to serve God in the strength that he provides. God tells us it's not by power or by might, but by his spirit, says the Lord. He says, when we're weak, he's made strong. His grace is sufficient in weakness. Maybe you feel stirred to serve in a greater way in your family. Just to serve believers in whatever context you, you find them, but you feel so inadequate. And the Lord's saying, look, I have ability for you. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Try to do it in the power of the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God lead you. Say yes to the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. What, what's the Holy Spirit saying in your family this evening? What's the Holy Spirit saying to this church family this evening? In verse 12, Behold, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as so some, some strange thing happened to you. With the time that's left, don't be surprised by suffering. Let that sink in for just a moment. 
Don't think it's strange that a fiery trial has come upon you. This word strange means novelty, surprise, or weird. Don't think it's weird that some suffering has come upon you. Live life with an open hand, realizing that God is going to allow suffering. Now, having known this verse and knowing the truth that we will suffer, I still get surprised by suffering, don't you? Because for me, I, I tend to anticipate different types of suffering. Well, it'll probably be like this. It'll probably be like this and try to prepare myself for that. You can never really prepare yourself for suffering because it's never what you expected, right? It's always different than you, you expected. But God's telling, hey, don't, don't think it's strange. Don't, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. This is specifically talking about the suffering that comes because of walking with Christ. To the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering, then rejoice. To share anything in common with Jesus is worthwhile. We share in the sufferings of Christ and the fellowship of Christ, and then we're told that there's going to be a reward when he's revealed. So be glad with exceeding joy. In verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of, the, of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. So if we're walking in righteousness and we get persecuted, there's a promise here that the spirit of glory is going to rest upon us. This word glory, it speaks of weight. It's the majesty of who God is. Suffering brings us into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it causes us to depend upon the Holy Spirit. If we go through trials of any kind, it very quickly brings us to our limits, and hopefully we're relying upon the Holy Spirit. Maybe God's desire for us to rely more upon the Spirit is to allow suffering in our lives. When things are going good, we tend to rely upon our own strength, and suffering results in Jesus being glorified. They're blaspheming Christ, that's on their part, but on our part, we've chosen to glorify the Lord. We've chosen to be willing to suffer. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Suffer for righteousness, but don't suffer for murder, or or theft, or being an evildoer, or being a busybody in other people's business. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So if you are suffering because of righteousness, don't be ashamed. Don't don't think that that's shameful, but glorify God in, in that manner. In verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's the context here? The context is, are you suffering as an evildoer or are you suffering for righteousness? Then the challenge is, take a good hard look. Let judgment start in the house of God. Now this isn't speaking of the kind of judgment as, woe is me, God hates me, maybe I've lost my salvation, that kind of judgment. It's an examining of ourselves to honestly say, where's my heart in life with the Lord? Is there areas that I need to get right with the Lord? As a believer, what happens in a family when there's sin? There's a breach in relationship. What happens when sin is confessed and forsaken? 
there is healing in relationship, isn't there? You know, when you look at a family member and you say, you know what, you forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm sorry that I got angry with you. And you agree that this was wrong. You agree with God. You agree with them. There starts to be healing, doesn't there? But you didn't lose your place in the family because there was sin that took place. Hopefully not. And you're no longer God's child because there's sin, but it affects our relationship with God. So, so let judgment begin in the house of God. 1 Corinthians 11, when it gives the instruction on communion, if you read the whole thing, Amber and I were talking about this this week, it tells us to examine ourselves when we take communion. To, not for condemnation, we're remembering that Christ died for us and, and rose again, but we're saying, Lord, is there anything in me, in this temple, that's not right, that I can confess and forsake to be in right relationship with you? And how often do we as believers examine ourselves anymore? It's almost strange to hear those words, isn't it? You know, oh man, man, that's heavy. And no, it's not heavy, that's freedom. We want to regularly be in the place of examining ourselves and allowing brothers and sisters in Christ that we trust to examine our, our lives as well, to be willing to give us input and to, to challenge us because God's saying, let, let judgment take place in the house of God or take a good hard look at your own life. Are you suffering as an evildoer or are you suffering for righteousness sake? But what do we tend to get really fired up about? Come on, we get fired up about the world, right? We get fired up about all the decisions that unbelievers are making and the way culture's going. You've heard me preach on some of that stuff. I can really get going, right? Gets us, gets us moved. It's a lot easier for us to look at the world instead of look at our own hearts and lives, isn't it? Say so it starts here. It starts in the house of God. And if it starts in the house of God, then what will be the end of those that disobey the gospel? There, there's real judgment that takes place. Verse 18, now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let God care for your soul. Surrender your soul to God. Maybe you're in a place where you say, man, I'm really suffering for righteousness. I really tried to do the right thing in this situation but I just am being persecuted for it. They're coming against me at work, in my own family, in my school, with my teacher, my professor, my, my fellow students. God says, look, don't try to go put all the fires out. Don't try to convince them that they're wrong and you're right. Just commit your soul to the creator. Trust that he's going to make all things right. Jesus says he's crucified. In his last words, what did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm trusting myself to your care. And as we suffer, Lord, I'm trusting myself to your care. So tonight as we close, what are we going to do with the time that we have left? With the time that God has, has given to us? May he teach us to number our days so that we will gain a heart of wisdom. Do we have the mindset of Christ? Adopting a mindset of suffering. Do we have the end in view and choose to pray seriously, to love fervently, share joyfully, serve effectively?
Do we think it's strange that fiery trials are coming into our lives? More than anything else, what this chapter seems to express to me is press into Jesus. Press into all that he is, all that he's done, his suffering. Because in doing that, then we find encouragement. So as we take communion, it can become a routine, but I encourage you tonight to allow it to be fresh. To come to the communion table to remember Christ's sacrifice for us to examine ourselves, not for condemnation, but for right relationship with him. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11 to us, the instructions on communion, and then we're going to come and celebrate and take communion together. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Just take, take it in and listen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord." that we may not be condemned. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So how do we take communion in a worthy manner? By giving place to Christ, remembering what he's done, and examining ourselves and saying, Lord, what is it in me that needs to get right? What this is not saying is you have to be worthy to take communion. That's not what's being described. Otherwise, we would never take communion, amen? It's our attitude in which we approach Christ and we give worth to his sacrifice and we examine our own hearts before him. As we come to the communion table tonight, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, we'd encourage you to be saved before you take communion so you understand what you're doing with communion. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again. He wants to be your Lord and Savior. And as Billy and Jared lead us in worship, there's going to be a ministry team. We'd invite you to, to come and receive Christ, to trust him. Say, Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again. If you need prayer tonight, we'd love to pray with you. But more than anything else, let's, let's press into communion. Let's meet with Jesus. Let's press into his suffering and allow him to comfort our hearts. So Father, as we take communion, would you minister to our hearts? May it be a sweet time of fellowship with you, Jesus. Amen.